Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. I am coming to you this week from Scottsdale, Arizona. That is where six FBS conferences are meeting, their coaches, their athletic directors. So I am out here doing some reporting. We will bring in from The Athletic two people, Nicole Arabak and Max Olson. We will talk about the NFL draft, a lot about Daniel Jones, who was really the headliner of last week's draft, Dabo Sweeney's new contract, and what it means to college sports in general. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts and on Podcast One. And wherever else you find your podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review if you are so inclined. You can also find us at collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. This week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, we are, and I say we because I'll introduce my guests in a second, we are in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. The uh, conference meetings are this week. You have the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, AAC, MAC, and Mountain West all meeting at the same beautiful hotel in Scottsdale. Uh, so that means a lot of reporters are hanging around lobbies, running into coaches and ADs and trying to come up with stories. I am joined by a pair of writers from The Athletic, Nicole Arbach, Max Olson. Thank you guys very much for joining me here. You will hear maybe some water flowing in the background and some birds chirping. It is a lovely day here, and we are taking a few minutes of, few minutes of time away from loitering in the lobby to loiter in the garden area. Thank you very much, Nicole, for being here. Very happy to be here. I've been on this before, but never in quite a beautiful, such a beautiful setting. This is definitely much nicer than usual. Yeah, Thanks, Max. Serene. The, the ambiance. I'm, I'm a big fan. You've, you've really, you've really hooked this up, Ralph. Well done. I would actually like to do this. This would be nice to just have this type of setting all the time. Some type of like tropical Let, setting. Let's fly down here for our podcast all the time. What about like it's like podcast at the spa? Like that's kind yeah. of the vibe I'm getting. This is. This will be a very mellow and somewhat quick podcast. We didn't have one a podcast episode last week that was timely. Some news that was uh, some things in the news that I missed. I like to go over this week, and I'll start with. Let me start with the draft. And I'm going to start with Nicole because the biggest news out of the draft was Daniel Jones going to the Giants at number six. That stunned people. You wrote about Jones. You know, I think it's easy for us to sort of like look at the guy and sort of say, oh, and nobody thought he was going to go this high and he gets dismissed. You know, what are the things that we should know about Daniel Jones? And, you know, I ran into David Cutcliffe yesterday and he was trying to sell me that, listen, this guy's as good as Eli will be. Right. I mean, I think that. It's not his fault he got drafted so high. Um, I think, you know, it was a, a draft where teams were having trouble trading down in those in those spots to begin with. Um, and, and they could just say they got the quarterback that they wanted, um, no matter what he was picked. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because so many people, the backlash was so surprising to me. Like, it was so weird that Daniel Jones became the most polarizing player in this draft because he is a genuinely nice person, has, like, not faced adversity, like, did pretty well at Duke, played through injuries, whatever. Um, but the first thing to note is just that he didn't have much around him these last couple of years at Duke. I mean, you, you have to look back and see how few guys have been drafted in the last couple of years um, and, and start there where you're kind of looking at his numbers. And, and I think that when you talk to David Cutcliffe, and this is someone who is known for being a quarterback whisperer, right? Um, obviously, like, everyone's been making jokes about it, but a lot of the reason that Daniel Jones was getting pre-draft hype as a first-round draft pick is because he's coached by the same coach that coached Eli and Peyton Manning. Um, but I just remember one of the first things that, um, that Cutcliffe said to me about what attracted him to Daniel Jones in the first place was his hands. And he said that they're middle infielder hands. And that that's something that you can't really teach. That's something you just have to have a feel for the game. Um, and, and that was something that he said Peyton had. And, you know, he, he, he brings those guys up not to put, like, unrealistic expectations on what we think about Daniel Jones. Um, but I think, you know, there, there are certain elements that he notices that he can he knows he can build off of. Um, and, and really, he noticed that pretty early. I mean, you know, everyone knows the Daniel Jones backstory that he was very lightly recruited, didn't even have recruiting pages on all the recruiting websites and was going to go Ivy League before his high school coach called up cut and said, hey, like, am I blind? Like, do my eyes deceive me? Like, isn't this guy a good quarterback? And cut was like, yep, absolutely. Don't call anyone else. Like, we will get him on our campus. He will start as a, as, as a, as a walk-on. Uh, so I believe the Duke walk-on Twitter account is claiming him as their first walk-on first-round draft pick. So we can <laughs> double-check that. But... Um, basically, like, he registered that first year, and I remember Cut telling me, and I've heard it from other coaches too, they could tell right then when he was the scout team quarterback because they would get distracted by him during practice. Um, and it got to the point where Cut said that he was worried about the defense at one point because he was like, what's going on here? Like, why is the scout team quarterback doing these things to our defense? Should I be more concerned? And then he realized, no, I think we've got a pretty special player. And that was the first time he realized he could be, like, a first-round draft pick. So the other news that sort of comes out, and the the one thing I'll, I'll add on Daniel Jones. Well, let, I, I, let me ask you guys this though, because okay. you're the New Yorkers, okay? okay? So you are living this in the middle. It's like, yeah. to me, it's like it doesn't seem to me like people are like anti Daniel Jones. It's like, like he's a good story, like yeah. good for him, right? It seems like the New Yorkers are hung up on yeah. one. You could have taken Haskins there. Mm-hmm. Two. You maybe didn't need to take Jones at six when you had another pick. Like, isn't it more like circumstantial? Like that. Well, why was he the guy over Haskins when it seemed like, you know, that that maybe is a little bit more straightforward to the college football fan that watched those two guys or, or didn't watch much of Jones? Yeah, I, I think part of it is, and you 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 just said it right. It's Gettleman, right? Oh, Gettleman. Yes, it's it's definitely. The Giants in- taking yeah. Daniel Jones at six. He did not, like, ask for any of this. Right. And it was the fact that they decided to take him. I think it's definitely the Haskins element to it. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it, it wasn't the strongest quarterback class, but people have felt for a little while and have talked about it that he was probably, the you know, the best quarterback in the draft. I mean, obviously Kyler fits what Cliff Kingsbury wants to do at Arizona, and so that was a unique situation. But I think... You know, what we saw Haskins do in limited time, because, again, it was only one year at Ohio State that we saw him play, uh, you know, did convince people that he could be the face of the program. He could be that quarterback. And so I think it's that. It's that that he was available and they didn't pick him. And then the Giants had a pick at 17, which would have seemed like a more reasonable place to pick Daniel Jones. 
Um, especially, you know, you still have Eli and you're going to have to manage that transition anyway. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the frustration comes in. Um, but again, he could, and Gettleman could have done a better job of just going, hey, this was our guy. Like, it didn't matter where we were going to take him. Like, we wanted him. Yeah, the Giants fans are going through sort of an existential crisis right now because the team because the team has been very bad. They always are. Like well, Jets and Giants fans are always an existential crisis. But but, the, but we've been become accustomed to the Jets being sort of inept and falling over themselves. The Giants have won Super Bowls not that far long ago, and Eli was the quarterback who won them. But now they see like Eli is is obviously on the way out. The team has had like had something to the extent of like five or six losing seasons in the last six or seven years. Yeah. So it's the spinning of the wheels. You could have had a quarterback last year. You took Barkley. Now you decided that no, we can take the quarterback at six. So uh, who knows? Daniel Jones may end up being the guy who proves it all. Proves that Gettleman and crew are all geniuses. But I think because there's not a lot of hope and optimism with this group it makes it easier to sort of bash Daniel Jones. And one just quick thing, um, and it would deserve its own whole conversation, but I think also the Giants not really having had a black quarterback mm-hmm. is part of this. I mean, just the look, right, oh, of... For, for Haskins. Right, right. And, and skipping him. Mm-hmm. And, and if he was, you know, generally accepted to be the top quarterback prospect and to skip him. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of different things going into that kind of backlash storm of... Right everything. And unfortunately, Daniel Jones is the guy who has to sort of be the face of it. So one of the other things that happens with the draft and was something that, that Max was tracking um, is you end up with uh, an underclassman who don't get drafted. And basically, it's been about 30% of those players um, over the last, like, five or six years. It's running around 30%. I think it landed at 33% this year. And the number of underclassmen entering the draft is going up. So the total number of kids who don't get drafted is going up. I am sort of of the opinion that this is not necessarily a problem that needs a solution. It's just maybe something that, you know, it's a little unfortunate. I don't wonder what your, because again, you were tracking that over the weekend. What's your sort of feeling of, is this something that needs to be addressed or is it just, Hey man, kids got to get jobs. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's unfortunate. I mean, you hate it for those kids. Um, and, and I, you know, I I did a big kind of deep dive on this last year. And, and when you talk to people, when you talk to uh, college coaches, when you talk to players, when you talk to um, agents like I talked to Gil Brandt and Gil Brandt's view on this stuff is like way too many of these guys are coming out because agents are lying to them right and and I think college coaches uh, they get frustrated because you know they try to give the best information possible to their kids uh, before they make that de- decision in December and January and sometimes the kids listen to it and sometimes they just don't and um, you know it's it's tough to like have an all-encompassing view on it because it is so case by case with every kid and there truly are some kids that know the risk they're taking going in. And there's some kids that I think are misled um, on whether they should go pro or not. And, and there are some that are probably, no matter where they go, are making the right decision because they've achieved all they can in college. So uh, certainly you wish there were some really easy way uh, for the NCAA to just snap its finger and, and let these kids, you know, these 49 kids that are underclassmen, um, pretty much all of them could have come back to school you wish there was some easy way for them to go right back, but that is just so hard to pull off with the college football schedule and the fact that, you know, you have the 85 scholarship limit. You have to sign a certain amount in December for signing day. You go through all of spring ball, and then the draft happens after that. You wish there was some easy solution to that, and, and maybe someday we, we can have that. I, In some ways, I like what college basketball has done by letting them explore 
their draft status and go to a combine before coming back. And I wish there was some way that worked in, in college football. Um, but I don't think we really have much movement towards that. And, and like you said, is it a problem we need to solve? Maybe not. But the number, it is interesting to me that, like, I think the committee does a good job of giving them feedback. But more guys go pro every year, and the same percentage of them still do not get picked. So we kind of haven't seen an improvement as much as people, I think, are probably making an effort to give these kids good information and to avoid mistakes like this. I, I think... It's easy to sort of for us to sit back and go, oh, look at this list of players, and wouldn't it be cool if they could return to school? Sure. Though I, I think the unintended consequence of that would be how many more players, if, if you knew you could enter the draft, go through the entire process, and still go back, aside from roster spots, scholarship spots, the fact that you may have just had an agent pay you $50,000 to go to Exios for, right. for a month. Like, Let's put all of those issues aside. Would that encourage even more kids to say, oh, yeah, sure, now I have no problem. So now you have even more un- uncertainty in the system, right? Right. Well, and it's like, are we going to come up with some, some waivers? So, you know, then Alabama has 100 scholarship players because, you know, guys went through it and then came back and, you know, but they signed. It's, it's just the numbers standpoint. It's tough for these coaches to sort of figure out a solution to this. And so you just try to do the best you can. And, and look, all these players will pretty much all these players will get a chance in camp to prove that they belong. And, and you certainly are hopeful that leagues like um, the XFL can sustain a little bit and that you can create a secondary league or a minor league situation where these guys still have an opportunity after college. But, you know, for for these guys like Tyree Jackson or little Jordan Humphrey, um, or, or uh, you know, they're good players, mm-hmm. and you hope that they get a look, but you can't help but think some of them could have benefited from another year. And, and uh, you know, but you got to remember, too, these the, the draft is such a long process, mm-hmm. you know, and... Where you think you're going to be at the beginning is often not where you end up. And certainly we've seen a lot of seniors like this year's draft with Christian Wilkins and Josh Allen, guys who come back, made a lot of money. Um, but that's not always going to be the case for these kids. Right. That, that, right. A lot of kids sort of tap out and are at a point where the decision is not, well, should I come back and increase my value? The decision is like, well, listen, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to get faster. I'm not going to get any more passes thrown to me. Right. So how am I going to increase my value? So a lot of kids are faced with that decision, which is why when you see kids who come out early and maybe get third or fourth or fifth round be, be drafted then, and you say, oh, if they would have came back, they could have done better. Maybe not. A lot of them right. really, even, and a lot of them I think know that, yep. that they, they weren't going to do any better. All right, so I want to shift to the other big news that happened at the end of last week on the coaching side of things, aside from the big Dave Clawson extension that went down today, which really shook up the ACC, though a good move by, by Wake shout Forest, obviously. Dave yep. Yeah, shout yep. out to Dave Clawson. And you know what? He's done a really nice job there, and I think he's, he could probably do even better in some other places, but he's a good fit there. Uh, Dabo's making a zillion dollars now. Uh, it was, what, it was a, te- was it a 10-year extension? Now I'm even forgetting. It was like, it was, you know, he's making like $9 million uh-huh. a year. Yeah. I mean, he's – so I guess the, the question I would ask you, Nicole, is Gracie Rayner, who's your colleague at The Athletic, also wrote about sort of the Dabo effect. I think a lot of college coaches, these, these, these salaries are probably exorbitant. But is Dabo now moved to the point of – yeah, 10 years, $93 million was the total on the – Dabo contract has Dabo now moved to the point of being like Saban where you can say for most of these guys they're probably overpaid 
but for this guy, it actually kind of works. Yes, I think that's fair. I mean, because again, when you're in a market that's not a free market for the athletes, like it funnels the money in directions like these coaches because they're the ones recruiting and developing and like the faces of these programs. So you could argue in all of those, in those two cases in particular, that they are underpaid, right? You could, you could make that case. Um, I, one thing I do think it does outside of obviously putting a lot of money in his pockets is he has on the record been against paying players. And I think that that came up. And I think that, that it makes that a harder stance to have, um, when it's that uneven and, and there's, you know, I, I think that the issue of paying players and name, image, and likeness and all these things, which are very much in the conversation all the time now, Mm -hmm. and they weren't for a long time. It's, it's, it's increased as the coaches have went from, you know, making a hundred, couple hundred thousands of dollars to millions and now 9 million a year. That's the disparity and that's the inequity that bothers people. And so I think you know, that, that is, that, I think that was an important side conversation after he, after they announced the seal. Yeah. And I think that's going to be, that's going to happen all the time now. Yeah. I think when you see these and, and the really what has triggered me, I would say on these conversations to the point where I'm like, cause I'm not necessarily a, Oh, you have to pay the players. I do think that you could do things with name, image and likeness, all the things that have been talked about before where you're not paying them salaries, but still compensating them is, and I'll throw this to you, Max, is it's really the coordinator stuff that has gotten to the point of being a little ridiculous. It's hard to really make the arguments about player compensation when you're throwing two million at the coordinator. No, that's true. And, and, and look, the reality is Nick, the salaries for Nick Saban and Dabo Swinney should be the exception, right? Mm -hmm. But those guys should be making what they make because, I mean, you could make a fair, you know, fair market value, like, the value they bring to their, their university, like, I get it. I get why they have reached this salary. And what Nick Saban means to Alabama is probably far exceeds what he's compensated for in a year. But those guys should be the exception to the rule. And instead, these guys kind of, and their agents, that helps set the market for everybody else. And it sets the standard for bringing everybody else up. And, and yeah, like you said, I mean, we're living in a time now where, like, it's not that ridiculous for the best coordinators to be paid $2 million, which... 10 years ago is preposterous, you know, and, and so as, as you're right, as you see the money, as Nicole said, the money flows into all these different areas because you can't pay the players and to see the salaries go up on, on coordinators, it's, I don't see how that's going to stop because it's competitive and it is, um, you know, there are not that many that are at the very highest level in this sport that are not becoming head coaches, right? So, um, yeah, that's just going to keep escalating and I'm sure the coaches will too. And I don't know at what point this stuff ever caps. Right. And so on the coordinators front, I mean, one of the reasons that Clemson has gone on this run these last few years is because they've kept them. Like, Brent Venables not becoming a head coach and staying and doing it there. Like, that's why they're paying him that money. And their staff continuity is the opposite of Alabama. Like, we, you know, it was a really interesting con, uh, contrast right after the season leading into the playoff um, that they've done it with all the same guys. And so, again, all of that is credit to Dabo. And the school kind of putting all this money. But this is also a school that, again, has funneled money into the resources and a slide because they're not paying their players. So, like, there is that money because people care about this stuff. And winning is a big deal. And, and all of this does for the rest of the university um, nationally, internationally, and all of that stuff. But but I agree with Max. I mean, the, the issue isn't necessarily these two guys making $9 million or whatever. It's that a first-time head coach in SEC gets five 
for, and with no track record. These are guys who won national championships. These are guys who have done all you can do in the sport, and, and, and you can make these arguments for them to deserve that type of compensation. There's a lot of people that, because it's setting the market, first-time head coaches or, um, you know, or ones that maybe were fired from a previous job landing somewhere, they're getting ridiculous salaries. And that's more of the issue. Right. It's gotten to the point now where it's almost like a luxury item. It's it's like a badge of honor in the SEC. And really not just the SEC, but especially in the SEC where we're Ole Miss and we're going to pay Rich Rod and, and Mike McIntyre over a million dollars each because, well, because yeah. we're in the Why SEC not? and that's what we do here in the SEC. Right. Well, and I think that all this actually makes the coaching market more volatile because you see we've seen the Saban effect for the last decade here that everybody's looking over the fence there and saying, well, this is how they do it at Alabama. This is how we should be doing it. I mean, why does Jimbo Fisher leave Florida State? Because he looks over and sees how they do it at Alabama and Clemson and say, this is the level of support I should have. And then you become unsatisfied and you go somewhere else where they can give you a monster deal. So I think that it, it, I think it really does raise the pressure on these coaches, not necessarily those two, but the guys below them whose salaries rise up to this level and who they, they feel like, well, if we're going to compete with Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State, then I need to be making X and my assistants need to be making X and you need to be putting this much money into the program. Um, the demand for support, I, if I were an athletic director, I'd be very uncomfortable about how the standard keeps getting raised and raised by, by these two championship programs, you know? Right, and, and here's where, like, those guys had time, especially Dabo, to build like th- what's happening now is these other coaches in those tiers below are not having any you get time. Two or, years now, right? Yeah. Two years because yeah. the money is so big and expectations are so high, you're not getting any time to grow or to build. And and so that's another interesting aspect, and that's that leads directly into the crazy buyout situation. And then so these schools are expected to pay the money to get rid of their coach and then pay exorbitant amounts of money for new coaches too. And so it's like this cycle is just I I don't see how it's going to slow. No, I don't see it either. And the the other part of it with Dabo, because about the the Dabo effect and how much these coaches like Dabo and Saban are sort of worth to the university at large, I think that's true with them. I think Dabo has raised the profile of Clemson in ways that, you know, no professor or research grant could have ever done. However, there are a lot of economists out there who will say, who will push back on the idea of that the whole front porch notion for a lot of other schools, yes. right? right? It, it, yes, it's working it's not universal here. Universal for 130 teams. Where yeah. it's working for Alabama, it's working for Clemson. It might not necessarily work for everybody else out there. Sure. So, maybe a little bird watching next time yeah. when we come here, because yeah. uh, you can hear some. I mean, it's like a podcast, so we can exaggerate. Like you know, we've got all these. Should we pipe it in like the Masters? Well, we've got. Like... <laughs> Yeah, we've got these parrots hanging around us and all sorts. You know, it's no, it's it's this is luxury, man. It this is, is a luxury podcast. I mean, look at look at Paul Chris seeing sunlight for the first time in months. Oh, there, there was, is it. There was Paul. snow in Wisconsin. His wife just told me. We, so we, this is this is this is paradise. We could just sit here and sort of people watch and say, "There goes Paul Chris." And oh, there is you know, I just saw Jim Phillips from Northwestern go walking by the the great AD there, and uh, you know, we we passed by Matt Wells from Texas Tech just a few moments ago. So just, every, let's just name. Let's just yeah. make and Mike Gundy was wearing a white polo and white jeans and a, and a very very in season mullet. He was he was killing it. Yeah, the mullet was still raging for Mike Gundy. Uh, we have seen Tom Herman. Uh, so yeah, there was all kinds of stuff going on in this podcast that have uh, that you know just dropping to add, names add and some context to yeah. our to our recording. Yep, yeah. I think it was. I think it's important. Yes, yeah, we have a lot. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun here in Arizona. And we are going to go back to work because this is truly work for us. 
Uh, so we are going to go back to work now. Appreciate you guys coming on with me for a few minutes here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Thank you, Nicole. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Max. Anytime. Let's let's do it in this location anytime you want. You can you can fly us out here next time you yes. request our services. Yes, the AP budget will definitely include that. All right, good deal. Thanks, guys. And now a very quick three and out. First down. Dave Clawson, as I mentioned earlier in the show, has signed an eight-year contract extension to be the coach at Wake Forest. Clawson has done a really nice job there. After a couple of years of rebuilding, he's been over 500 for the last three years, which is no easy task, with bowl games in each year at Wake Forest. Clawson is an interesting guy. His career got sort of sidetracked when he went to Tennessee to be the offensive coordinator under Phil Fulmer at a point when that regime was starting to come apart. He's sort of an under-the-radar candidate for bigger jobs at maybe even a place like Notre Dame if Brian Kelly were to ever walk away. But it's a good job by Wake Forest to lock him up. Second down. The Big 12 is toying around with the idea of having a standardized injury report throughout the conference. This is something that's been talked about especially throughout college football since the Supreme Court decision that made it legal for states to have sports betting. Don't know if this is going to actually get off the ground, and it's something that's probably going to be battered around by just about every conference. But the Big 12 gave it some legit discussion this week here in Phoenix. We'll see where it goes from there. Third down. Last little note on the draft. You probably have, you may have seen it. The SEC set a record with 64 selections in the past draft. Listen, I constantly try to get across to people that the SEC is the best conference because that's where the best players are. They're mostly located in the SEC footprint. The fact that the SEC generally produces the most draft picks will generally lead to it being the best conference. That doesn't mean it's unbeatable. That doesn't mean it should get special consideration when a team like Georgia loses its championship game and that team should end up playing in the playoff. We don't necessarily want to give the SEC that much benefit of the doubt. But if you want to figure out an easy way to determine which conference is best, look at the NFL players that conference produces, and that will probably tell you where the best football is being played. And consistently, the SEC is producing the most NFL talent this year, the most ever. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. Please come back next week for more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podcast One and wherever you find your podcasts. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. Talk to you next week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.